Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 30. In this week's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Edward Parson of the AI Pulse Project at UCLA. That puts him at the intersection of artificial intelligence and law, on the leading edge of research in the field. Ted is their Dan and Ray Emmett Professor of Environmental Law and Faculty Co-Director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. He's been published in Science, Nature, and many other journals, and his recent books include A Subtle Balance, Evidence, Expertise, and Democracy in Public Policy and Governance. He spent 12 years on the faculty of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, has consulted for the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and has degrees in physics and management science and a PhD in public policy from Harvard. Pulse is the program on understanding law, science, and evidence at UCLA's School of Law. They conduct, and I quote, interdisciplinary research and innovative programming to study how technological advances and scientific knowledge and uncertainties influence law and policymaking, and how their impacts can be managed to advance human and societal well-being, end quote. And they've had some fascinating webinars on topics like the balkanization of social worlds into diverging points of view and alternative payment models for the internet. Sounds right up the street of this podcast. Here we go with part one of the interview. Ted Parson, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Peter. It's nice of you to have me. Thank you. Now, we're going to talk about your involvement with the AI Pulse program at UCLA, but let's get to know you a little bit first, and maybe you can tell us some of your background and how you got involved in this work in particular. Uh, Sure, happy to. So I'm half trained in four fields, so I don't quite fit in any disciplinary unit. I now have the pleasure and opportunity of sitting in a law school, but I am the law professor who's never been to law school. The main theme of most of my work has been on energy, environment, and climate policy, law, and regulatory issues with a fairly strong engagement in scientific and technological issues. So I have an enthusiasm and sort of comfort with engaging scientific and tech issues. For the past 10 years, much of my work in the climate space has been on the governance challenges associated with engineered interventions to actively modify the environment, so-called climate engineering, climate intervention, or geoengineering. About four years ago, I got interested in the rapid developments that were underway in the broad space of data, information technology, AI, and machine learning, and started up a project investigating those, hoping for there being significant parallels or complementarities across the different domains. So, you know, I have a joke that now I, you know, I work on two of the three areas of technology that terrify people, you know, geoengineering and AI. And all I need to do is establish a project on gene editing and synthetic biology, and then I would have the trifecta. Uh, Now, of course, I can't do that because, in fact, although there's a lot of complementarities, in fact, there's also differences between these two fields. And so one cannot, without limit, proliferate academic or policy work in different areas of technology without running into capacity constraints. 
all you have to do is rename it eschatology studies and and you're in. Mm-hmm. Now, the AI Pulse program, the Pulse stands for a program on understanding law, science, and evidence. And, and now that's got this AI aspect to it. Covers what on first blush are some very broad issues, a broad range. You've had webinars called the echo chamber, the notion that we're living in social worlds that are increasingly narrow, tightly connected and homogeneous. That is the Facebook problem. Mm-hmm. And then could AI drive transformative social progress? What would that require? And then a thought experiment about whether AI could run the economy better than markets. Each one of those sounds like an entire discipline. Is it just fun to range over so much territory? Well, it is a great deal of fun, of course. There is an integrating theme here. So when we started AI Pulse a few years ago, our sense was that the debate on the societal, regulatory, and legal implications of AI and related technologies had gone through a big swing over time. So in the early days, it was dominated by rather breathless, uh, popular accounts about the transformative impact of fully autonomous AI, super intelligent AI. The, the theme being that these aspects, and, and it's not that they're to be dismissed, were so transformative that basically they were unprecedented in human history and it was necessary to kind of find fundamentally different ways of thinking about those risks. Now, after a few years of that being the main focus of inquiry, there was a reaction uh, led by a couple of scholars who wrote some very sort of forceful and very compelling pieces saying, everybody's talking about the singularity when AI gets smarter than people. And in fact, there's all this stuff happening right now that is a very serious legal and policy import, and people should be paying attention to that. So the center of mass of the debate shifted from the distant future to immediate issues where AI, data, big data, surveillance, machine learning, were impacting present legal and policy controversies and concerns in a very direct way. So the bulk of the debate shifted toward things like racial bias in algorithmic decision-making. Uh, transparency and accountability, and what those legal and policy requirements implied in a domain where decision-making was increasingly automated and algorithmic in character. Now, when we established AI Pulse, the sort of the basic insight that animated it was that there's a big gap in between these two. There are absolutely immediate societal impacts and regulatory and policy and legal concerns posed by stuff that people are doing with AI right now, I'll keep saying AI, even though I should at every point put an asterisk on that, say AI and related data and technologies, because there's a cluster of sort of neighboring technologies and capabilities that have complementarities and they extend in other space. So superintelligence, singularity, remote future shifted to compelling immediate concerns right in front of us. And then this space in the middle, relatively unoccupied. So we have tended to focus our interest on that space, attempting to characterize potential applications of AI and related technologies and data that are, say, five years or 10 years in the future, and uh, uh, bring what relevant knowledge is available together to characterize the nature of the impacts that might be expected from that, and thus the nature of the legal and policy challenges that they might pose. So at that level of generality, that kind of ties together the activities that we've done in AI Pulse. So the piece you referred to on the thought experiment, could AI run a centrally planned economy, 
not just better than the failed Soviet experiments of the mid 20th century, but also better than markets. That was an attempt to identify a potential application enabled by the vast expansion of capabilities that's now underway and that would be transformative in its impacts for good or ill, or no doubt some complicated combination of good and ill. The project with my colleagues at the RAND Corporation on the potentially transformative impacts of AI for social good, that's another direction of efforts to look 10 years ahead, what might human welfare gain from these technologies? What would be the requirements or conditions for having a chance of gaining those? And how, if at all, do they look different from what's happening right now? The echo chamber and the other webinar we did on payment models for internet content and their implications. What we're doing there is trying to identify current concerns that are much bigger in their potential impact and implications over a decadal scale future. So the echo chamber, basically the claim that social media and in particular the algorithmic enabled feed up of information and connections via social media is fragmenting social connections, bringing people into more tightly connected smaller bubbles. So if that is correct about the phenomenon and its causation, it has huge implications for social, economic and political life over a medium term time horizon. You also might have noticed that in order to shake up our thinking on that, we actually invited in a brilliant science fiction writer to be among the, you know, among the participants in the conversation. And so anytime we were tempted to go small, bore, and immediate, you know, we legal scholars, you know, David Brin was there to say, well, but you could think of this in bigger context. Right. I listened to that. And so there is this perhaps tension in that you're looking for things that are deliberately five to 10 years out. On the other hand, the question of social media and its effects upon our society and our democracy are current right now. I just finished reading Brittany Kaiser's book about Cambridge Analytica mm -hmm. and what it did for the 2016 presidential election and the Brexit vote and other national votes. And that is the application of AI towards psychological warfare of a kind, propaganda. What are your thoughts about the immediacy of issues there? How has your thinking developed about what kind of regulatory response might be needed? Well, the, the most familiar trope about legal and regulatory responses to disruptive technology is that law and regulation are too slow, too clumsy, too rigid, and two behind the curve in terms of scientific and technical expertise. And so the whole endeavor is kind of impossible. Now, uh, in my view, that council of despair is strongly overstated. And yet there is some truth to it, right? I mean, so challenges and disruptions from technological advance come up sometimes very suddenly, not always as suddenly as startups say they're going to when they're pitching their enterprises to their, <laughs> their early investors. But I think some of the things that are happening now in terms of deployments and applications of AI, big data, and related to tech speak very precisely to current fault lines, concerns, and controversies in society. And if you project the impacts of them forward, you don't get big kind of phase changes in what you expect. 
So think about something like algorithmic bias and decision-making. It's now very, very well established that machine learning-based systems, because of their need to be trained upon large volumes of historical data, tend to embed the habits of decision, including biases and prejudices that are embedded in the aggregate history of human decision-making. So criminal justice, risk assessment algorithms to be used in parole, bail, sentencing, et cetera. Now, it shouldn't have come as such a shock, but it did initially come as a shock that these systems had very clear racial biases. In that respect, they are sort of resonant with racial biases that exist throughout current human society, American society and, and, and broader society. And they represent a challenge where the introduction of automated decision-making via AI changes things it doesn't necessarily make them worse. I mean, I, I think the best characterization of what happens with AI is that the systems are less prejudiced than the worst current human decision-making institutions, <laughs> more prejudiced than the best, and might actually have the constructive effect of surfacing for examination biases that were previously concealed. But I don't think that the structure of those challenges and potential responses is likely to be really different in five or 10 years than it is now. And that last point is the distinction I'm trying to draw here. Now, if we compare that to, say, something like highly skilled manipulation of individual decision making through you know, machine learning driven algorithms optimizing for engagement or retention, we absolutely do have debacles already, such as Cambridge Analytica's role in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and in the Brexit election. But I think the claim of sort of limitation of change or limitation of impact that I made a moment ago about algorithmic bias doesn't apply in that case. The possibility for continued expansion of data surveillance and better algorithmic tools to more and more precisely manipulate human decision making in domains where we still operate on kind of ideological presumptions of autonomy, you know, as foundations of democratic decision-making, as foundations of actually valorizing market-based decisions and so on. I would say that continued development of those capabilities poses challenges to human organization and institutions that become transformative and novel in character by virtue of continued incremental development of the capabilities. And it's getting some degree of disciplined handle on the nature of those transformative impacts that really defines the core of my interests in AI Pulse. And I think of you know, those of my colleagues in the project as well. And I would say those are different both from super intelligent AI, you know, enslaving or exterminating human beings, and from these credit granting decisions are both opaque and thus violate due process concerns and racially discriminatory in their outcomes as they're already being applied right now. And so we need to find, you know, GDPR 2 or, you know, California Consumer Data Act 2 to address those. I think that the power of artificial intelligence in bias is not one-dimensional in that you could put it in between two levels of bias as currently seen in the world without AI, but it amplifies what's currently going on. It makes it possible to make mistakes and do the wrong thing faster and at scale. And bias is not necessarily amplifying human bias. 
it can be accidental as a result of missing data. For instance, the uh, Google photos tagging, where it tagged a picture of black people as gorillas. Mm-hmm. Wasn't racial bias at Google that caused that. It was the absence of sufficient pictures of black people in there. Their data. Photographs of dark-skinned human beings yes. in their in their database. Yep. Yeah. Which, which could have a, a, a human analog, but might perhaps be a unique example of bias as an emergent phenomenon from big data? I, I, I doubt if it's unique. I mean, it might be intrinsic to the search for new areas of application. Because if you're working with systems that have to be trained upon large volumes of historically available tagged data. I mean, I know there's advances underway in sort of learning algorithms that require less direction based on tagged data, but most still do. That puts a kind of a historical conservatism into anything that decision algorithms were likely to do. And I think it actually creates all kinds of landmines for serious errors as the system gets applied in domains that are different from the domains upon which its training data uh, came from. And in specific identified instances, such as that Google image tagging failure, once the omission and its resultant problems are identified, then it's obvious what to do about it. And it's not that it is that difficult to generate large numbers of images of more diverse collections of people, you know, all colors and ethnicities and dresses and customs and so on. Uh, The problem is that to the extent that general capability is expected or imputed to the systems, it might be a systematic pattern that they're repeatedly moving into areas for which their training data are not sufficiently relevant and there is an increasing risk of introducing certain kinds of high stakes errors. Right. And I don't have a current update on this, but at least three years after that error, Google still had not addressed this issue beyond removing gorillas as a tag from their algorithm. And they were soliciting pictures of ethnic people on the streets according to some accounts, which surprised me that the data they want shouldn't have been as available in the internet already. But that's not something that I've got some really current information on. I don't know the current status of that. And of course, you know, that that particular example was egregious in a way that provoked a huge hostile response based upon the disrespect and the insult. I mean, it wasn't that there were severe material consequences that fell to the person whose spouse or child, I think, was incorrectly tagged. So I don't know what's happened subsequently. It may be that their subsequent search for a more diverse set of human images is just further disclosing all the previously unknown biases in the data sources that were already available. And of course, accumulating primary data is a big job. It might be one aspect of developing AI-based systems that is not subject to huge economies of scale. And thus, there's this commonplace trope in AI debates now when people worry about concentration of power and antitrust and monopolization and leveraging of existing power to, to broader mechanisms of power, that the constrained resource for enterprise isn't capital anymore, it's data, and data is going to be subject to much stronger concentration and economies of scale and scope than capital ever was. And so the shift to the important resource being data is going to be a shift toward more and more natural concentration of economic power in the economy. Mm. 
And we've been talking here pretty much exclusively about uh, social rights and legal responsibilities, but the charter of Pulse is the connections between technology, science and law. And with AI, that can extend to its use in law offices. And there are cases where AIs are better than humans and certainly faster than humans in vetting non-disclosure agreements, for instance. So there's a huge amount of territory there. Is that within your purview as well or more out of scope? It's not firmly out of scope. It hasn't been a priority area thus far. So I would say, I mean, there, there's there's a couple of, you can, you can conceptualize the relationships between AI and law in a few different ways. And so one is AI-based systems transforming the practice of law and the education of lawyers. You know, how do law firms work? What their cost structure? What does it take to deliver high quality legal services? And how do you train students to deliver those? That isn't quite identical to broader concerns about the impact of AI on labor markets, but it overlaps with them to a substantial degree. Uh, To a substantial degree, what's going on there is automation, reducing the need for human judgment and decision-making in various functions that contribute to the economy. And so the lawyers are in the same position as the stockbrokers were and as the pharmacists are going to be and as the money managers and investment advisors are going to be. You know, there's this irony in automation that AI-based and data-based automation targets thinking jobs rather than physical skill jobs. And so ironically, my grandmother's advice that, you know, a skilled trade was always a reliable way to make your way through life is oddly becoming true again after some decades of, you know, no, no, go to law school. (laughs) (laughs) So there's the labor displacement aspect. And I guess I want to submit that that actually is not that distinct in law. So if you're running a law firm, you, of course, want to be up on all the current generation of tools that are offering to improve the output of your office, reduce your costs, etc. I think other aspects of the relationship between AI and law are actually pose deeper challenges and are more interesting and more distinct. So the automation of authoritative decision making, authoritative decision making as conducted by state small, not not U.S. states, but, you know, small S state, state organizations. This is huge in its implications, and we see it kind of creeping in at various margins. So use of machine learning-based systems to adjudicate immigration, citizenship, and refugee claims, for example. There's been substantial deployment of those systems already in the government of Canada, for example, in Employment and Citizenship Canada. We talked about criminal justice already. So AI systems that although formally in advisory roles, given workload constraints, end up exercising very substantial decision-making authority over decisions of huge stakes to human beings. You know, criminal justice, healthcare, education. But then also, people conceptualize these issues mostly in terms of challenge and risk, but there's also a, po- a kind of a positive aspect, an opportunity aspect to them. Consider sort of interminable, disingenuous fights over legislation based upon contending incompatible claims about the budgetary impacts of this or that draft legislation. Imagine if the central process of impartial adjudication of impacts of specific statutory language had some element of expert-based automation to it. So could AI machine learning systems take over some of the task of the Congressional Budget Office or the GAO in terms of budgetary scoring of legislation? 
would that be okay, right? I mean, would that breach sort of procedural, you know, constitutional or procedural protections that are important to keep on those processes, or would it be an improvement? Could AI systems somehow manage mechanisms of citizen and stakeholder consultation to help develop collective decisions around regulation, legislation, or program design in a way that would be more reliably reflective of popular sentiment than current incomplete and impartial mechanisms are? You know, you, you, can, you can get as radical as you want. So, I mean, I tried to sort of throw along Hail Mary pass forward with my piece on AI central planning of the economy. But, uh, you know, my colleague and co-founder of AI Pulse, Richard Rays, is working on a project called AI Overlords that basically poses the question, how extensively could AI-based systems fully supplant state decision-making? And in what respects is that a desperately, you know, terrible, frightful thing? And in what respects might it be a constructive thing? Well, we're talking around a number of impactful subjects here. I think if you title something AI overlords, you've kind of forfeited your right to not be sensationalized in the media. <laughs> um, yeah, but but uh, it is only his working title. And I think his aim is that there's a little bit of irony in the title, because of course, yes, it is sensational. And it is also strongly pejorative, right? I mean, you know, right. Hey, I, you know. Some people can't take a joke. Um, <laughs> sadly, the, sadly, no. Yeah. Yeah. And when you ask a question, could AI run the economy better than the markets? I feel I have permission to ask, could an AI run the courts better than juries? Or better than judges. Actually, mm -hmm. my colleague, Eugene Volokh, who loves to stir up debates with provocative contributions, he has a paper a couple of years ago called Chief Justice Robot, which basically poses the question, what do we expect of judges? On what criteria of performance do we evaluate judges to say this person is a good judge and this one is a less good judge? And if we imagine that that specific decision-making function was replaced with an automated algorithm rather than a human being, would that be intrinsically problematic? Or can we imagine that it might not both, one, render better decisions according to consistent criteria, and two, on that basis, be permissible, you know, even if we start with sort of prior objections saying, no, no, decisions of this gravity must be undertaken by only human beings. Well, I can think of numerous decisions by white judges and juries in the South that could have been improved upon by AIs. Right. I mean, when we started a few minutes ago talking about use of machine learning based systems in criminal justice, generally speaking, the issue is that they are biased. They exhibit racial, class, and other biases, but they do so somewhat less than the alternative pre-existing human decision systems. And actually, one area in which I think there's some real progress is that people doing the training algorithms for them, I think, are getting skilled at reducing the severity of those biases by tweaking the learning algorithms and the, and the training data sets. Of course, nobody exactly knows what a completely impartial, unbiased criminal justice sentencing decision system would look like. And so nobody knows how to evaluate how close toward that aim a given system has approached. And of course, there is a morally consistent position, which is that any such bias is impermissible and any system that exhibits such bias must not be used. And don't bother me with questions compared to what. <laughs> That's the end of part one.
I cut the interview off there because Ted is about to branch off into a parallel with autonomous vehicles, which led to a discussion that took a large chunk of time that I want to keep together. You'll find that in next week's episode. I find it perpetually fascinating how people working in this field find themselves ping-ponging between immediate consequences of AI like bias, fraud, privacy, and explainability, and long-term consequences like job automation and controlling machines that accumulate increasing levels of decision-making power. You heard Ted there start off talking about how early discussions on the impacts of AI were dominated by grand themes of superintelligence and the singularity, and he helped bring it back to the here and now with what's going on right now that needs to be addressed. Yet Pulse also addresses long-term concerns including the possibilities of automating the legal system and redesigning the economy, we rapidly bump up against our painfully inadequate powers of prediction and how little we know about the forces that will shape the future. So my hat's off to TED and AI Pulse for tackling that, and also to the Open Philanthropy Project for their funding of Pulse. In today's headlines from AI, the big one is Google DeepMind's AlphaFold breakthrough in protein folding. Molecular biologists are not given to florid overstatement, so their reactions to this make it all the more pivotal. This is on a par with DeepMind's AlphaGo, which in the space of a couple of months advanced the level of computer ability in playing the game of Go by a degree that was expected to take at least 10 years. Okay, but first, what is protein folding? Why is it important? And why is it so hard? Protein is not just something you get from dairy. There are all kinds of proteins, over 200 million at last count, and they are big molecules made up of chains of amino acids. Proteins make up bigger structures and play important parts in the functioning of our cells. They also appear in viruses. For instance, the coronavirus has spikes that are proteins. And our vaccines currently target locking onto those spikes to inactivate the virus. We can analyze a protein to find out its sequence, which is to say the order of amino acids in it. But the other thing that's important about a protein is how those chains are folded up into a 3D structure, because the resulting shape determines how it behaves, like, for instance, whether it can grab onto the spike sticking out of the coronavirus and block it. We only get indirect information about that structure. To figure out what its shape really is, we need techniques like cryo-electron microscopy, nuclear magnetic resonance, and X-ray crystallography, which can take hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of trial and error for a single protein. Some proteins remain unsolved after much longer. The number of ways those chains can be folded is so huge that trial and error is nearly hopeless. But now, DeepMind's AlphaFold, using 128 of the latest generation of Google's tensor processing units, can predict the folding of a protein just from the sequence. And it is unbelievably good and fast at it. I say unbelievably because researchers who looked at its results thought they were so good that maybe it cheated. So they gave it a special challenge to find out the structure of a membrane protein from an ancient species of microbes called archaea which had so far defied our attempts to model it. AlphaFold returned a detailed image of a three-part protein with two long helical arms in the middle. Quote, it's almost perfect, said Dr. Andre Lupus, director of the Max Planck Institute for Developmental Biology, to Science Magazine. They could not possibly have cheated on this. I don't know how they do it. 
Mohammed Al-Qureshi, a systems biologist at Columbia University, said, quote, It's something I simply didn't expect to happen nearly this rapidly. It's shocking. End quote. He thought it would take 10 years to get from the 2018 version of AlphaFold to the level of results they have now. Sounds a lot like AlphaGo, right? Dame Janet Thornton at the European Bioinformatics Institute in Cambridge, United Kingdom, has been working on proteins for 50 years and said, That's really as long as this problem has been around. I was beginning to think it would not get solved in my lifetime. AlphaFold will open up a new area of research. End quote. So this is huge. I've been frustrated by much of AI research for a long time because all it seemed to be used for was learning consumer preferences to make recommendations on what they should buy next. I felt like paraphrasing Peter Thiel. I was promised the end of disease and pollution. I got a suggestion to buy barbecue tongs. But now, AlphaFold starts to deliver. This level of breakthrough in protein folding really can make substantial advances in curing diseases, in creating enzymes to break down plastic waste, and devising means to capture atmospheric carbon to reduce greenhouse gases. Way to go, DeepMind. In next week's episode, we'll conclude the interview with Ted Parson, starting with a fascinating discussion about regulation and autonomous vehicles, including branching off the infamous trolley problem to ethical and liability implications, and some of the Pulse Project's work on imagining the broader, long-term consequences of artificial intelligence development. And if you're embarking on a new career or career change, or you know someone who is, We'll discuss what working on the project would be like specifically with you in mind. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.